2: Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA.
0: Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
3: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're going to be doing one of our invention episodes. We're going to be talking about locks and keys. I've got a question at the beginning here. Did you, Rob, ever play with a like combination lock or any kind of lock sort of in a fidgety, almost fidget spinner kind of way when you were a kid? Because I definitely did. I had one that I would just lock and unlock over and over again. Uh, yeah,
1: I remember that I feel like any house is going to have a drawer, and in that drawer well, a you're going to have a bunch of keys that you have no idea where they go. They've mm-hmm. completely lost their locks. Uh, but then you may well also have a spare uh, key lock or a spare combination lock, and those are you know instantly fascinating because yeah, you're getting to to turn uh, little wheels and arrange uh, numbers on them, or it's the the kind of the dial and you're you're, mm-hmm. you're going back back and forth on it. You know they're 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 fascinating bits
0: of security technology. There the one I played with I remember was a combination lock, but it had a little uh I think it had a little catch, like it it had a button that was pleasing because it would make the you know, the bar release and that felt oh, good yeah. in the hand. Uh okay, so I guess we, we should talk about the lock itself and when we talk about uh anything in our invention episodes, we like to start by talking about what came before.
1: Yeah. So this is this is interesting to to think about and, and to read about. One of the first places I turned to was the the book, The Seventy Great Inventions of the Ancient World. Uh, I'll stand by. Yeah, yeah I, I keep coming back to it because it's just a, just a great book. Uh, Brian M. Fagan, uh, just a, a, a name that's, that's difficult to avoid if you're looking into ancient technology, technology of the ancient world. And he wrote a, light, a, a write-up in this book on ancient uh, security technology, and he wrote it with William H. Manning, whose expertise, I believe, is primarily in in Roman innovations and Roman gadgets. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, they point out that passive security technology in the ancient world first took the form of city walls. But city walls address outside threats, not threats within the city itself. So it becomes essential to raise still other walls, other gates. And so some of the earliest bits of security technology in this fashion would have been, of course, high walls, more of them. Guards, human guards, if you could afford them or, of course, be them. Right. The the meat tech for security. But then one of the big uh, um, uh, developments here
0: the barred door, the mighty wooden bar, <laughs> the greatest invention of all time. This inanimate carbon rod, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, it's the same principle.
1: Um, yeah, so uh, we'll get back to the bar in just a bit because the the wooden bar is is fabulous. But. It goes without saying, but before we can have locks and keys or even the barred door, we need doors themselves. And Fagan and Manning write that the doors made to turn on pivots set into the threshold developed long before the true hinge. And this could be accomplished and was accomplished uh, in in cases entirely with stone. Uh, And it allowed for the door to be opened and to close. Now, a true hinge was an Iron Age advancement that allowed the same thing. Add a bar, slot it into bolt holes on the inside, and you have a really effective means of locking a door, again, from the inside, and this is an approach that is still used to this day all over the world.
0: Right. So, I mean, that's going to be extremely effective security. You've got a bar that crosses from the door to the threshold, so the door cannot really be open unless you essentially have to destroy the house and the door to get in. Um, right. But uh, but I see a major flaw to that. What if you want to leave the house and have nobody home, but still have nobody get in there while you're gone? That's right. Yeah, the, the bar is great if you're inside. But
1: then you, but you can imagine the wheels turning early on um, to, to use a, a technological metaphor. Mm-hmm. Like, how do, how do I make my door be barred if I am not home? Well, you could you could right. leave somebody inside it, but then you're getting into the guard situation, right? Mm-hmm. I need a spare human
0: to do this for me. Right. Why even have a bar then? You can just have a guard and leave your door open.
1: Yeah. So this is going to lead to the development of, of most of the inventions we're going to end up talking about in this, in this episode. Um, but yeah, the bar was, was highly effective, widespread. We see lots of examples, for instance, in Roman Pompeii. Um, but uh, th- this is interesting. They also write that an additional level of security was afforded in the ancient world via wax technology. You hmm. would seal a storeroom or container, which would not serve as a real physical barrier, but it would serve as an instant sign that it had been opened.
0: Ah, this is like in the James Bond movie when he uh, he's about to leave his hotel room and he plucks a hair from his head, wets mm-hmm. it with his tongue, and then spreads it across the gap in his closet doors. So he will know when he comes back if someone has gone through his closet while he was gone because the hair will, will have been dislodged.
1: Ah, uh, I remember um – this is often used in, in thrillers. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it factors into Stephen King's misery as well. Um, she leaves Annie traps Wilkes. like this. Is
0: that her name? I think, that, I think
1: that's right, yeah. yeah. She leaves traps all over the house to see if he's actually getting out of bed and leaving the room where she's keeping him. And she discovers that he's left the room, but she also thinks he's, he's made it to rooms that he actually hasn't ventured to just because of the, mm-hmm. the fallibility of the safeguards. Oh. The hair is not foolproof. Yeah. But the wax seal, you know, I've pr- pretty pretty good, I think, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and, and also, it's something where if someone's going to break into it, you could perhaps observe them doing it as well. Um, so we apparently see lots of examples of this in remains from the Near East and the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of Kings was a rare surviving example of this sort of, of seal dating back to the second millennium BCE. Uh, and uh, the authors add that the, the, the practice carried over into Greek and Roman uh, in the Greek and Roman period with signet rings used to mark the wax and of course, this survives survived well beyond uh, those days as a means of sealing envelopes and packages and whatnot. Um, and, and ultimately, I guess, pro- products of all kinds uh, to, of all kinds to this day. You know, when you go into the your grocery store and you buy some sort of food product or you buy a, you know, a bottle of Tylenol, mm-hmm. then uh, what are you encountering? You're
0: encountering some sort of a seal. Right, yeah that's a good point. I mean the signet ring not only shows you that it is it is closed and has not been opened but it shows you who closed it. Right? So maybe you could imagine a, a letter being tampered with or a door being opened and then somebody else puts, you know, new wax on it or uh, gives it a new envelope with new wax and you know and then you could be fooled except they probably won't have the ring to stamp the exact design you're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah. So already, you know, we're getting into ideas of of like ownership regarding the seal, ownership regarding the lock, even if it's not a true lock, a true physical barrier, but something symbolic. And I guess that still carries on into a lot of things that are in in our world that are, you know, only there's only some marginal level of security there, technological or not. But it creates a line in the sand. Mm -hmm. You know, are you willing to cross this line?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh I would imagine like the door on a mailbox, you know, somebody else can easily open your mailbox and get the mail out and mess with it or steal it or whatever. But there there's sort of the door is is a marker that's like if mm-hmm. you open the door on somebody else's mailbox, you are clearly doing something wrong at this point. Unless you're, yeah. I don't know, putting something in to give to them. Yeah, I don't know about you,
1: but I, I get creeped out of I'm going to walk through the neighborhood and somebody's mailbox is open and it has mail in it. I'm I'm, I'm like, oh, my goodness, this is not right. I've got to shut it. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I'm afraid that they'll look out the window and see me shutting it and think that I'm snooping in their mailbox. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know that exact feeling, actually. Um, so I, I was thinking about locks and sort of in line with what we've been talking about already, locks to me seem to exist on a... Continuum of an ever shrinking circle of easy access to spaces. Um, so of course, you know you have you, got early technologies like walls and structures and containers, artificial containers, artificial buildings, and these have to have doors or gaps so that you can put things in and out or so that you can come and go from a building. So obviously, the, an improvement over just a wall or a container with a with an e- with a gap in it is a solid door with a latch, like we've been talking about now. By latch, I'm interpreting this in the broad sense, meaning everything from the kind of spring bolt that you would find, you know, that you operate with your doorknob on the front door of your house. So this is a spring tension latch that's got an angled edge on one side and it allows the door to slide gently from the open position to the closed position, but not vice versa. And there are all kinds of latches, You know the hook bar that you see on a screen door that holds it closed. A latch is just any mechanism for holding a door closed until you perform some operation to allow it to open. And in a way, I think it makes sense to think of a latch as a narrowing of the circle of who or what can access the space behind a door, Because once a door has a latch, basically any human can open and close the door because they've got problem-solving skills and dexterous fingers. But the door cannot be opened by weather or by wild animals. So a gust of wind isn't going to blow it open because the latch is holding it closed. Or a coyote can't push through it because it's not going to be able to figure out how to work the latch. So the, the access circle to the interior space has shrunk. I like this. So yeah, you get it to the point where,
1: okay, now only humans can open this door because of the latch. But then with our next step, you, you, you close that circle even tighter and you say, only humans with the right sort of stick can open this door.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Because another key invention to keep in mind, again, I, I use key here uh, because it's so <laughs> such a part of our, our language and our way of thinking about things. But yeah, uh, uh, an innovation to keep in mind here is, is not only the latch, but the latch lifter, a curved rod that can be inserted through a slit in the door and then manipulated in such a way uh, as to lift that interior latch, either by practice, because this is your door and you know exactly how to stick the, the latch lifter through and lift it. Or, of course, by trial and error, because you're a crafty thief who possesses their own latch lifter and knows that if you mess around with it long enough, you'll manage just fine. And so we see examples of this in ancient Greece and ancient China from roughly the same time period,
0: the first millennium BCE. Oh, like the, 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 the latch lifter, the credit card and the door trick? Basically, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, yeah, and... Um, and and again, it, it, I guess you. Yeah, I like the idea of thinking about this tightening circuit circle. Only people yeah. with sticks, with the right stick, can can open this door. And if you're messing around with a door that is not yours, you have to be willing to cross that line and be that weirdo who is suspiciously
0: fishing around in somebody's uh, latch lifter uh, slot. All right. Well, what if you want to narrow it even further? So you want to keep out the weather. You want to keep out wild animals. You want to keep out. Uh, Uh, humans who would come around and operate the latch who, you know, who would, you know, reach behind the door and operate it or, or who would just be brazen enough to operate an outward facing latch. So you want to keep out some humans too. Obviously, this is where the lock comes in. It narrows the circle of access even further to only humans who can operate the lock. And the main things here would be that either they have something in their possession that allows them to operate the lock, which is a key, or they have knowledge of an obscure algorithm, like a combination or a mechanical trick to Mm. to open the door. Uh, Now, presumably, only the people who are supposed to have access to the space will be able to operate the lock once you have gotten to this level, but of course as we know, there there's sort of a, a lock picking spirit within the within the mind that's always a part of humanity. And I think I, I would have to bet that there have been professional or or at least hobbyist lock pickers as long as there have been locks.
1: Yes, I, I believe so. Um, you know, I, in, 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 before we did this episode, I was thinking a lot about, um, about Jorge Luis Borges and, uh, and about l- labyrinths and, uh, you know, the minotaur, of course. And um, I, I momentarily looked around to see if he had a poem where he talked about keys and locks. Uh, and, of course, he can't help but bring them up because they're such a part of our language. But I, I didn't run across or, or, or remind myself of anything uh, in,
0: in which he really dwells on it. Well, doesn't he say several times in the house of Asterion, like he he forcefully says in the the voice of Asterion, the Minotaur who's speaking, the speaker in the story, uh, says several times that there are no locks in his house.
1: Yeah, and I think this is what's really interesting. You can think of the labyrinth as the the lock in large and the lock and key mechanism is kind of the labyrinth in small because Mm. think about the ways that you solve the labyrinth. You have to use – you have to have special knowledge or you have to have, you know, exceptional problem solving abilities or you have to have good tools, you know, right, like that yeah. uh, the thread that you leave uh, uh, through the labyrinth as you wind your way through. And
0: much the same can be said for the lock. That's a good comparison. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about all different kinds of ways that the lock fits into bigger pictures like this. and And in one way that I started thinking about it was that The lock is a physical emblem of the historical development of social distrust. And I think this is probably a a problem that arises only once you reach a point in history where there are large settlements in which the inhabitants don't all know each other well. Like if you are part of a small band of people living a mobile foraging existence, you're hunting and gathering, uh, first of all, you, you quite possibly don't have any boxes or buildings to lock in the first place. But even if you did, there's going to be little opportunity for illicit access to spaces by unknown persons because, I don't know, it just seems like there is a situation of more constant total vigilance of each other and knowing everybody. But once humans are living a settled existence in one place, gaining wealth based on agriculture and forming conglomerations of humans containing persons of unknown trustworthiness, you can imagine a desire for something like a locking mechanism just being a natural consequence of of that, that increase in social complexity. And this also makes me think about locks in the context of one particular hypothesis about the origins of certain types of religion. And uh, by this, I'm referring to what you might call the big gods hypothesis. We actually talked about this in our episodes on the question of whether Santa Claus counts as a god. I think Mm -hmm. we recently republished those as vault episodes.
1: Yeah, we did. uh, We did a two-parter and we we repackaged it as a single massive episode It came out in December.
0: Well, I'll try to do the the much shorter version of explaining the hypothesis here. So it goes something like this. Um, A couple of common features of the major gods that people believe in today. One is that they are moralizing gods, meaning they care whether you do right or wrong, and they treat you accordingly. So bad people get punished, good people get rewarded. And they are omniscient, or at least to some extent, uh, they can see what you're doing when you're alone. And it's natural for people today to assume that all gods throughout history would have had these same features, but that's just evidently untrue. Historically, lots of gods have been more limited in their knowledge, uh, and they have been – totally or mostly unconcerned with the moral behavior of the people who worship them. You know, if you look at the Roman gods, there there are a few exceptions here and there where they take moral stands, but for, for the most part, the Roman gods really don't care if you're a nice person or not. They only care about whether you're praying to them and performing rituals for them. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that this does not mean that people who believe in gods of this kind were immoral people. It just means that they got their sense of morality from places other than the gods. They might get it from philosophy or common sense or have, you know, uh, folk tales or or stories within their culture that convey a sense of morality. There's just not this idea that the gods are interested in your moral behavior and will, will, you know, react to you accordingly. Now, to a lot of scholars of religion, it looks pretty strongly like there was a major shift across history. So through time, there's been this shift from mostly these amoral religions with gods not very concerned about moral behavior to moralizing religions. And the question is, why did this happen? Uh, a popular h- hypothesis goes like this. I mainly know of it associated with a book by the Canadian psychologist Dr. Era Norin Zion, Uh, And it's a book called Big Gods, How Religion Transformed Cooperation and Conflict. And uh, so the hypothesis is that these big gods, these powerful, omniscient, moralizing gods arose at certain points in history uh, to allow increasing social complexity – And uh, and the natural surplus of social distrust that comes along with social complexity. So in the ancient world, as settlements got bigger, with larger populations, you'd be surrounded by more and more strangers, and there'd be more and more trade between strangers across longer distances. There was just more freedom in that context – To cheat and steal and get away with treating each other bad. And this led to social unease and distrust, which made it difficult to engage in the kinds of trade and social cooperation that make big civilizations possible. And so this hypothesis says that big moralizing gods would fill that gap. They would allow societies to grow big and get more complex, and they would make complex civilization possible by ensuring that people basically all believed there was an all-knowing supernatural police force who would punish all wrongdoing even if nobody saw you do it and would reward people for honesty and pro-social behavior. Uh, it's an interesting hypothesis. I, I'm not sure if I'm convinced by it, but uh, you know, it, it's definitely worth considering. And the question is, are, are there any ways to look for confirmation of this? One way I've seen people trying to test this hypothesis is just looking at existing societies today and saying, you know, are there any measurable pro-social benefits to believing in moralizing gods versus not? Uh, One of the studies, though, that looked into this took a historical survey approach, and we talked about this one in the Santa God episode. Basically, it just tried to do a historical survey and say, hey, as societies become bigger with larger populations and more trade do these booms in social complexity correspond with historical evidence for the emergence of big gods? And this one study that was by Whitehouse et al. in 2019 in the journal Nature uh, found that the answer was sort of, not perfectly. Basically, what they found is that There was a chronological historical correlation between big moralizing gods uh, being the dominant religions and increases in social complexity in a region as would have been predicted by the hypothesis, but – it was chronologically inverted. So uh, they say, quote, Our statistical analysis showed that beliefs in supernatural punishment tend to appear only when societies make the transition from simple to complex around the time when the overall population exceeds about a million individuals. Um So there is this chronological historical association, but it seems like on average the religious changes tend to come about after the formation of big complex societies, uh, not before them to enable them to exist in the first place. Uh, Which is still very interesting to me, but to bring it back to Locke's, it seems like if there is anything to this big god's hypothesis – it seems like an almost perfect kind of mental or spiritual complement to the technological innovation of locking mechanisms right yeah that there's there's this this increase in distrust that comes with. Uh, being surrounded by strangers and having all this social complexity that's you know, psychologically threatening to you and rep, you know, represented in your mind as a constant threat and vulnerability and the, the implementation of these measures to soothe that and allow you to engage in a complex society and cooperate and trade and do all that kind of stuff without being overwhelmed with this, this kind of paranoia, the big gods could be one part of that, locks could be another.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that makes that makes perfect sense, you know. And you, you do see it reflected. Uh, and I don't I don't know how much of it we'll go into in this the, in this this a look at, at locks and keys, but it, you see it reflected in the designs sometimes on locks, oh, uh, and certainly yeah. in uh, in the creation of walls and other security structures. You know, you imbue them with uh, various. Um, uh elements that have that that invoke the supernatural in the defense of whatever is
0: on the other side. Oh yeah, I mean it, another way you could think about it is um would like a curse would like a curse yeah. potentially represent another side of the locking mechanism. Yeah,
1: I think so. I mean cause the the curse is kind of a natural extension of the uh the, the wax seal with the signet ring ring uh, pu- uh, punched into it, you know. Mm-hmm. It's uh It's it's saying thou shalt not pass. And here is why, you know, this is what will happen, you know, using whatever tool you can to convince uh, somebody that that crossing this line will have consequences.
0: We actually talked about this when, I think it was a couple of years ago, we did uh, an episode in October about curses. And Mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about historical evidence for curses is that it seems like they were often invoked not just because, like, you were mad at somebody, but you would go pay a priest to issue a curse uh, specifically to, like, retrieve a stolen item or to pay back somebody who had, like, committed a crime against you. Yeah.
2: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every
4: journey. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT and T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT and T Fiber. Live like a millionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit AT and slash hypergig for details.
1: All right. Well, let's let's move on to some of the the, the first locks here. Um, you know, getting beyond sort of proto locks and getting into things that are more and more identifiable as a lock. So latches and latch lifters were used throughout antiquity, but additional security measures were obviously necessary. So wooden tumblers or pegs were placed above the bolt, and they, which dropped into holes when closed. And you had to lift these tumblers to free the bolt. So you needed uh, a simple pronged key, called a lift key, which was inserted through a hole in the door. And so this is where we enter the world of the tumbler lock.
0: Yes. Uh, So we don't actually know who invented the first lock and key. There is no record of that. But the evidence does stretch back at least towards pretty early in the first millennium BCE. Mm-hmm. And uh, the earliest known locks and keys attested in the archaeological record and in uh, descriptions and depictions from the ancient world were mostly not metal, interestingly. They they were – you mentioned wood. They were generally these wooden, large sort of club-sized keys. Yeah, again,
1: coming from the the, 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 the legacy of using some sort of special stick – Yeah, (laughs) to to put through a hole and manipulate what's on the other side.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the archaeological evidence uh, dates back thousands of years and it attests to the use of these wooden keys in Egypt and Mesopotamia. I think basically all throughout the eastern Mediterranean region. Um, One of the earliest physical examples I can find, I think this is still the earliest known physical example. Uh, th- this uh, There's a description of this that comes from a very old archaeological survey. It's a book by a Joseph uh, – I'm not sure how to pronounce this – Bonomi or Bonomi, B-O-N-O-M-I. Joseph Bonomi the Younger, uh, who did a lot of uh, illustrations of archaeological surveys from Egypt and other parts of the ancient uh, Eastern Mediterranean. And he's writing in a book – that includes descriptions of the Assyrian palace at Khorsabad, which is in present day northern Iraq, uh, kind of close to the city of Mosul. Now, uh, this uh, this appeared in a book that, that Bonamy wrote with Paul Emile Bota called uh, Nineveh and Its Palaces. The discoveries of Bota and Lyard applied to the elucidation of Holy Writ, published in 1852. So this book describes, discusses, and illustrates factual findings from the excavation of ancient Assyrian sites, and it's – you know, these sites would have been, uh, I'm sure, marvelous to see for the first time, full of these magnificent, frightening statues, winged bulls with human heads, the Lamassu. Um, but the book also, <laughs> in a kind of funny bit of framing, it tries to relate these real factual findings historically to the contents of the Bible. Oh, yeah. Now, I'm sure that gets weird in some places, but actually in this one passage, it, it turns into a kind of interesting literary comparison. Uh, so the, the part where he's talking about the, the palace of Corsabad they're describing the ruins of this complex unearthed at this site, and they go into a section about a particular chamber that they're calling Passage uh, Passage Chamber X, or I guess that would be the Roman numeral 10, Passage Chamber 10, and they write the following. The doorway we have now passed seems to form the entrance to a passage chamber, communicating between two courts the clear dimensions, not including the bulls at each end, being 46 feet long by nearly 10 feet wide. At the end of the chamber, just behind the first bulls, was formerly a strong gate of one leaf, which was fastened by a huge wooden lock, like those still used in the east, of which the key is as much as a man can conveniently carry, and by a bar which moved into a square hole in the wall. It is to a key of this description that the prophet alludes, and he's talking about the prophet Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible, uh, and the quote from Isaiah is, and the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Uh, So, this is interesting because that that might be one of those phrases where, if you're reading the Bible that just kind of passes over you, like, okay, you know, like he he's just saying he's going to give him the key. But that's actually a literal description of what keys of the time would have been like. You might carry it over your shoulder because it's like a bat. It's like a large object. Um, these keys would have been wooden boards over a foot in length, maybe as long as two feet, uh, so something like, 35 to 60 centimeters with an arrangement of pegs on the business end, sort of like the bristles of a brush. I was trying to think what would be the best item to compare this to in size and shape. And I think the closest thing I could imagine was a long grill brush. You know, you ever mm-hmm. use one of those to yeah, clean yeah. off a grill? Yeah, so sort of imagine a grill brush but made of wood with a specific configuration of wooden or metal pegs instead of bristles. And uh, in principle, these ancient locks, just like you were saying, would have worked much like the pin and tumbler locks that are still used today, though the pin and tumbler locks of today are uh, usually more complex by the addition of springs, which we'll get into later. But uh, they they had the same basic principle, which is that the movement of a bolt that holds the door in place is prevented by a number of loose pins that are lodged in tubes and the pins. Uh, sit between the tumbler and some kind of surface base, like the wall or the, you know uh, the the threshold, and it prevents the the uh, the bolt from moving. And the key, what the key does is you stick it in, and then the pegs line up perfectly with the tubes. So when you insert it into the keyhole, the pegs will fit into the tubes and lift the loose pins out of the way, so that the bolt can slide freely, freely and the door can be opened. And it seems like these were probably used throughout the ancient, uh, throughout ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, and basically all of the Eastern Mediterranean.
1: You know, another thing I like about the description um, of which the key is as much as a man can conveniently carry is it reminds me of. When you when you have to ask the gas the station attendant for a key to the restroom, and sometimes <laughs> yeah, it's, it's uh, tied you know, to shackled attire. to something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's great.
1: Because they don't want anybody walking off with it.
0: Man, that is one of those memories where I feel like that I, I have encountered that in my life, but I've also seen it in movies, and now I don't know if it was real or if I've only seen it in movies, and I've I, never th- actually. I, had it was to real. Do
1: it. Yeah, it yeah. was real. I, I know that I, I can't, you know, specifically call up the story but let's say i'm i'm ninety eight percent sure that i've I've actually encountered it in real life and not just a movie
0: yeah I, I'm about the same place maybe i'm at ninety four percent okay
1: <laughs> um all right so we're dealing with the, the age of the tumbler lock now. Uh, These were in use in the Greek and Roman world, as well as in China uh, before the end of the first millennium BCE. Uh, Again, the majority of these were made out of wood, but more advanced models uh, made with metal uh, and and metal bolts uh, and keys appear throughout the Roman world very late in the first millennium BCE. And this was probably a materials issue as iron was becoming more available and thus could be used in technologies like this more often.
0: Now, one funny thing that... uh people might be wondering about is like, uh, why, why the long key? Uh, You know, why, why was it so big? Why wasn't it just like, I don't know, six inches long or whatever. Uh, I'm not sure that this is a good explanation, but the best explanation I've come across for that seems to be that it was a security device also that it was long because if you had to reach like a two foot stick down into a thing, to uh to lift the pegs that made it harder for lock pickers to i don't know manipulate it with an illicit or dummy object because if it's just like a little 6 inch cavity you could probably like start Poking little sticks in there and trying to figure out how to get through. But if there is a long keyhole, it's going to be harder for you to get the leverage you need to screw around with it.
1: Yeah, I I think that was that was that was part of it. I mean, also, you know, you can only miniaturize the parts on something like this so much in the ancient world. And we'll get into some of the the, how that factors into the story of locks in a bit. And then also. These locks were were generally part of the door, which has existed a larger size anyway, um, because this is something to keep in mind. These tumbler locks they worked via gravity, so mm-hmm. it had to be part of the door. They couldn't you couldn't have a smaller lock that was uh, on something like a um, like a like a, a box, right, you know, like anything. That lock, would be, yeah. Yeah, anything that could be picked up and manipulated in physical space because then you could bypass the gravity. Right.
0: Um, so if, if you're having trouble picturing that, again, remember it's the pins that prevent the bolt from moving. It's the pins that hold it in place, and they're just these, like, little rods in tubes that sit there blocking the movement of the bolt until you lift them out of the way. So, yeah, yeah. if you could just turn it upside down and they just fall into the tubes above, then you could open it automatically.
1: But luckily, uh, in the world of invention, uh, the demon coily visited the earth and brought <laughs> with him the iron spring. Uh, and these were used to push the tumblers into the holes um, you know, in, in the bolt and hold them there. Uh, so then you suddenly had a situation where, yeah, you could take the lock mechanism and have it function on something that could be picked up and physically manipulated like a chest or indeed like a padlock. And on top of this, uh, these innovations led to a situation where you could arrange the tumblers in a special pattern. Uh, So you needed this required more than just a common lift key. You needed a particular lift key that terminated in a bit that
0: replicated the pattern of the internal tumblers. I imagine this would be a problem as locks become more common, right? So if you're living in the ancient world and you've got the only lock in town because like you're the only person rich enough to have you know to to afford a locked uh, enclosure, it probably matters less that the person who made your lock only knows how to make a lock one way and one key works for all of them. Uh, yeah,
1: it's kind of like thinking about your uh, your little clicker for your car that unlocks it. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, we've all had that moment where you have to it, it, sort of a, a weird, strange epiphany where you're like, oh, yeah, they're all different because otherwise we could unlock everybody's car. Uh-huh. You know, it has
0: to it, it functions like a key. But I wonder, are they all different enough? Like if you walk around parking lots long enough, just click in it. it are you eventually going to unlock somebody else's car or are they like really, really randomized? I don't know. The same could be said about going around town, sticking the same key into, into all the different uh, locks, right? That's a good question. I wish we'd looked this up before we came in. I don't know how how unique is the standard door key. Like if you stick your door key in 500 doors, are you are you statistically going to be able to open some of those or is that not enough? Would you have to stick it in 50,000 doors?
1: I know we have some some locksmiths out there that listen yeah. to the show. It, it has to be true. Uh, therefore, I think we'll hear from some folks uh, maybe answer some of these questions and, uh, and give us a little uh, insider insight in the world of locks and keys. Yeah. Um, now, uh, in, in terms of this uh, yeah, development of these, 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 these special keys, um, uh, these are really interesting. I was uh, uh, reading about it there in Fagan and Manning, and they they write, quote, Such slide keys were pushed into the bolt from below to lift the tumblers and then slid the bolt and open the lock. The keyhole has a characteristic inverted L shape. And indeed, if you look at some of these examples of these, uh, these, these iron keys, um, you know, they have this signature L shape. They look different than, uh, you know, they, they, obviously they don't look like a modern key, but they also don't look like the symbolic idea of the key that we have sort of in our mind, our idea of an old-fashioned key. Now, these look uh, like alien bottle openers in a way.
0: Yes, bottle openers. That's what I was thinking, but couldn't quite bring it to mind. You're right.
1: Now, according to the authors, the most advanced form um, was the, uh, the Roman, uh, we, we found in the Roman world, uh, a Roman lock. Uh, and the most elaborate, uh, the, and this would have been the most elaborate that saw use in the ancient world, uh, this would have been a lever lock. Uh, and this is still in use today. Quote, a single pivoted tumbler held down by a spring, a series of fixed wards prevented the wrong key from turning the lock, and the key, which had slots in its bits to allow it to pass through the wards, was rotated to lift the tumbler and then slide the bolt. Now I realize some of that might be hard to picture um you know when we're talking about the the intricacies of a of a of a, of a lock uh but uh but, but still we're we're seeing some some major advancements taking place here.
0: Right the ward in a lock uh, this is something else we saw in different forms in the ancient world but, but when you hear ward with locks basically think um walls or obstructions that would allow only a key of a certain specific shape to fit through.
1: Yeah. Now, lever locks appear in the late uh, first millennium BCE in the Roman world, but there's a, another interesting uh, uh, invention I want to talk about here, and that's uh, the padlock, which was a Chinese invention of the early first millennium BCE, and here's how Fagan and Manning describe it. Quote, in this, the bolt had flat springs welded or riveted to its tip, behind which they splayed out to give the appearance of barbs. When the bolt was pushed through the bolt hole in the lock case, these springs were first compressed and then, when the bolt was in the case, sprang out to prevent it being removed. It was released with a key which slid over the springs and compressed them, thus allowing the bolt to be withdrawn. Okay, I'm trying to picture that. Yeah, I had trouble as well. So I, I, I was looking around for an illustration and I, I found one at a fabulous website. Uh, I, I visited uh, Rain Borg's Historical Locks website. <laughs> uh, it's histori- it's historicallocks.com. And uh, this is just a wonderful website, fully cited and backed up by Borg's own experiences and observations, seemingly just traveling the world. Uh, looking for locks and keys and researching. He's a Swedish collector of keys and locks. He has a PhD in aesthetics engineering and ethology, and he basically yeah he basically travels the world looking at locks. And I just I want to base a whole D and D character on him already. <laughs> um, so I'm going to keep referring to to Borg's work here, and I, I recommend everyone check out his uh, website. But wait, what class uh, would that be?
0: Hold on, if, if you're a specialist in locks, that sounds like a rogue, or is it a oh, wizard? Oh yeah, no.
1: Well, it could could be you know you could take it in that direction. I was thinking more more the rogue direction. You have, have him be just a, a, a fanatical um, a lock and key enthusiast, where he he mm. wants to pick the locks not so much to to steal anything, but just to conquer the lock, to understand the lock, and to perhaps steal the lock itself and leave whatever gold and jewelry on the other side untouched.
0: You know, that's my development, right? I'm rogue thief branch. You you are yeah yeah that's where oh, that's cool. where I've been going.
1: All right. So, uh, yeah, great website, historicallocks.com. I'm going to keep referring back to, to Borg's work here. Um, but he has an excellent description, uh, an excellent illustration, rather, of, of how this padlock would have worked on his page about Chinese padlocks. Um, by the way, he also points to another predecessor to the lock and key, and that is the knot. Hmm. I didn't really think about this, but he says, in early China, strong knots, they required the tooth of a wild animal to undo them. Um, uh, were utilized, and so this tooth, uh, which he also says was a si or CSI, I'm not sure what the exact uh, if he's referring to an, a Mandarin word there or not, but he says this in some ways was the first key, uh, and we see an idea of this too in the legend of the Gordian knot. You know, a knot that must that is supposed to be solved in some way in order to um, unlock something. You know. Uh, but, but anyway, back to the, the Chinese padlock. As Borg explains, there's not a, a ton of information, at least available in English on it, but but he, he fleshes out some of the history of the Chinese padlock. Uh, so I'm going to read from uh, his website here. Quote, As I see it, it appears that mechanical locks began being manufactured and used somewhat later in China than in Western Europe. They are based on the locks developed in the second and third centuries by Roman engineers and spread by the Roman army to all parts of the giant empire. There are striking similarities between locks in China and and in Scandinavia during the late Viking era. Both of these cultures were removed from direct influence by the Roman Empire. Many of the larger iron padlocks I have studied have an unmistakable character of 17th through 19th century Arabic locks. However, it is clear that padlocks with ward springs on the shackle have been used by emperors and wealthy officials from the Jinn era, 265 through 420 CE on. But how did the first emperors arrive at the idea of using padlocks? Hmm. So Borg thinks that foreign lock technology may have entered into Chinese culture via Chinese trade and Chinese expansion uh, with like India and Iran and the, the Silk Road in general being a key here, mm-hmm. uh, building then upon existing Chinese security technologies. Now, at first, Borg says, such locks were probably just status symbols rather than dependable security devices. But as keys became more common and locks became more common, married women wore keys designating their role as key bearers, looking after the family's property, something that we apparently also see in European traditions, according to Borg. So
0: I guess the techno-symbology here
1: is just unavoidable.
0: Oh, well, much in the same way that, uh, say, the prophet Isaiah would say – That that God says to David, I will place the key upon your shoulder, meaning like you are in charge, you have the authority. Having the key to the household would be like symbolizing your authority over the household and the trust placed in you.
1: Yeah, key means access. Key means uh, possession, really. So uh, then in the Ming Dynasty, 1368 through 1644, improved materials and designs brought about improved padlocks. The wooden pin tumbler lock with uh, two to three pins was used in China at this time, as it was in Europe and parts of Africa, but uh, Borg writes, with clear ancient Egyptian roots. Chinese padlocks were often engraved, sometimes with the name of the current emperor, uh, but Borg says more often than not, it was poetry or wishes of good fortune, you know, that were, that were inscribed on the lock. Uh, like I said, Borg has great information on his website, but he also has tons of wonderful photographs uh, and illustrations of keys. And so some of these, um, uh, these, these Chinese padlocks are just amazing to look
0: at. Um, one of the ones has a – so you've got a key here that uh, I'm looking at that has a design that looks like it could be a complex, like, rune or, chi- or like, Mandarin character. Yeah, this is a box-shaped
1: padlock with a, a side a key that goes into the side. It's just really, really ornate, really beautiful. It has this kind of, uh, you know, golden or, uh, uh, you know, copper color to it. Uh, it's It's really awesome. And, yeah, Chinese padlocks took on a number of, of really artistic forms, including the forms of various Zodiac animals. Um, uh, we, we also see animal-shaped locks in other parts of the world, such as Russia and Persia. But, but the Chinese had these wonderful like, uh, Zodiac animal-shaped padlocks. Uh, there's one of a snake that he has a picture of that's just amazing uh, mm-hmm. with this, uh, this, this long uh, uh, key that goes into it that looks a little bit like a, like a file or something. Yeah, I see a horse. Yeah, there's a horse, and then, um, oh, and then this is, you know, not a Zodiac animal, but there's uh, some fabulous crab locks. Ooh, you know I love a crab lock.
0: (laughs) If anybody's wondering what to get me for my birthday.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, we also see some really awesome-looking Chinese combination locks. Now, Borg writes that that these are, quote, a nearly thousand-year-old Arabic invention, Uh, but it took several centuries for the technology to travel to Europe, and it likely took hold in China uh, around the 13th century. Now, uh, he he points out that Italian engineer uh, Giovanni uh, di Fontana was the first European to make a sketch of the Arab block idea back in 1420. And if we look to the writings um, of Muslim engineer Al Jazari in 1206, uh, uh he wrote a book uh titled The Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices. Uh and Al-Jazari is an interesting figure too. He was a polymath and an inventor of various uh automata. Uh, so all sorts of, I think there was like some sort of a uh a, a mechanical a flute player or something that he made.
0: Oh, that may have come up in a in a previous episode we did. Uh I think we did a whole episode maybe of invention about uh early automata at some point and talking about how they played into debates about the nature of what living things were.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so but the, the Chinese padlocks were really interesting because they, they also have this kind of, um, uh, you know, this horizontal, elongated look to them. They don't look really much like a modern padlock. Uh, this is how Borg describes them, describes them. Quote, These keyless locks are opened by, turning, uh, by the turning of several rings or cubes. The surfaces of the rings or cubes have imprinted letters, numbers, or in this case, Chinese characters. Commonly, each ring or cube is marked with four characters. Each must be turned to the correct position before the lock can be opened. And uh, he has examples of this on the website as well. But but all of this led to a whole tradition of Chinese padlock charms. Uh, and this, this reminds me a bit of the, um, we, we discussed recently in our episode about beds, we talked about the Egyptian headrest, the ancient mm-hmm. Egyptian uh, uh, headrest that kind of like, you know, holds the neck up during sleep and how this ended up taking the form of a, of a charm, you know, that, that uh, was not a functional headrest, but but brought with it all the magical ideas that were associated with it. And likewise, right. you see the emergence of Chinese padlock charms, flat, ornate representations of padlocks that had no mechanical functionality. Instead, they were protective wards for individuals or families. And apparently part of the idea here is that you could lock a newborn child to life and you would hang this in the house or whatnot, and then um,
0: you know, older individuals could, could actually wear the lock charm on their person. Wow. So you can see the obvious symbolic connection there that like the lock is security. The lock is protection. So the charm is a a abstracted version of that.
1: Yeah. And if you want to see some examples of this, there's a there's a website called Primal Trek that Trek is spelled like Star Trek primaltrek.com uh, mm-hmm. and they it has a, it's a site about various chinese charms it's i think it's largely like a collectors website so it's not an academic site mm-hmm. uh, but it uh, but it has lots of cool photographs and you can see examples of these lock charms there and again they're they're oftentimes beautifully uh, decorated as well with various symbols and signs uh, mandarin characters etc Now, the Chinese wedding lock tradition also came out of this, and is still practiced today with inscribed padlocks. And of course, we see versions of this practiced around the world as well. You know, if you go out to a a bridge in your area or uh, certain fences, you may find a bunch of padlocks that have been placed there. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's been done with, uh, you know, at least with some sort of symbolism implied, if not some sort of actual magic. But uh, you look at examples of the the wedding locks uh from from china's past and they're they're absolutely beautiful as well uh the The photographs that I found on Borg's site of these you know it looks like some sort of a, a musical instrument oh yeah, I see it the shape is like it's like the base of a lute, yeah, and the lock itself like reminds me more of some sort of like ultra modern uh purse or something you know uh, it's it's yeah they're really fascinating and again you you, can't, you really need to look up a picture of them to understand what I'm talking about but but yeah it's a beautiful and just another insight into just how the idea of the lock and the key how it permeates our uh, understanding of ourselves and our relationships to the world and other people
0: yeah it's funny how much uh, if you listen to people having I don't know social cultural values arguments it's funny how much the phrase wedlock comes up great yeah. wedlock is never a phrase that's used in like normal life where you're talking about normal relationships you know like you you want to get married to somebody you don't say i want to be in wedlock with you <laughs> it's like only a phrase that's deployed when framing marriage in some kind of like sort of contentious political argument isn't that funny yeah I place you under wedlock. I cast wedlock, third level. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday
2: afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or...
4: Naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time outs, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. at and Fiber. Live like a guggenjaner. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig for details.
1: now uh, we we mentioned earlier about just the idea of of like a large lock that 's part of the door, and how one of the the issues here is just how small can you possibly make the parts right right and uh, and then especially when you 're getting to into locks that are you know, produced then for everyone in the city uh, in, which would be the the locksmith's uh, 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 you know, duty to the to those who live there um, there's an interesting uh, case that, that is uh, that is cited in the book connections by James Burke uh, of course uh, he also did the the television series connections mm-hmm. uh, about the history of inventions and how and how they're connected by sometimes these sort of like trivial seemingly trivial moments in uh, in human life and human history wonderful series but he has a bit where he talks about locks and the industrial revolution and he makes special mention of Henry uh, Maudslay, who lives 1771 through 1831, an English machine tool inventor who just apparently worked his way up through factory work from the age of 12, just doing all sorts of kind of god awful sounding jobs. But he had this, um, you know, very in- in- ingenious mind for mechanisms, and he, you know, he's just figuring out how everything works uh, at every stage of the game. Mm-hmm. And then at age 18, he begins to work for the English inventor and locksmith, Joseph
0: Brahma. Oh! Uh, who, so, a, yeah, major figure. People might well have heard of the Brahma lock before.
1: Yes. Yeah. The Brahma lock is central to this. Uh, Brahma also invented the hydraulic press. So uh, if we have any uh, Terminator fans out there, uh, <laughs> you can thank, you can thank uh, Brahma. Otherwise, that scene wouldn't be possible. Uh-huh. Uh, so Brahma designed and patented an improved tumbler lock. Um, uh, but he encountered challenges when it came to manufacturing it for an economic price because it's one thing to make a really cool lock a really effective lock a lock that I think I read that he he even had a, one of these placed in uh, in the front of his store and there was a reward if you could pick it you yeah. know?
0: but well th- this comes up often in um you know in many episodes of invention we discovered that uh, often the the impediment to an invention going out into the world is not that it can't be made but that it can't be made economically that it can't be made in a way that you know makes sense for anybody to make it
1: yeah, I remember we talked about this with, uh, with Jeff Berry, a.k.a. Beach Farm oh, yeah. Berry, <laughs> about cocktails, like even in that. Like it's one thing to make a really awesome cocktail with all these crazy ingredients, but can you scale that? Can you actually, can you make it in a bar and then, and then sell it, put a price on it that people will pay? Mm-hmm. And of course, it's the same thing with this lock so um yeah so so brahman he has this he has this problem. How can I make this this lock in a way where people will actually be buying it, and i 'll make money off of it? because apparently, the time was right because because uh, uh, Burke uh, mentions that there were a series of of robberies in London, so it had increased the demand for security technology and 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 Brahma wanted to take advantage of this. So he ends up hiring Maudsley and Maudsley devised tools to make the locksmiths work faster and more accurate, enabling the Brahma lock to be produced for cheaper and sold at an economic price. Now, Maudsley eventually leaves. I was reading that the Brahma like pulled a Scrooge on him and wouldn't give him a raise after all of this, <laughs> so he he leaves. But he takes his lathe with him and he sets up his own shop. And in time, he becomes what some historians consider the founding father of machine tool technology.
0: And this is actually historically very important, or at least uh, Burke makes the the argument that it is because, of course, it is true that precise machining of metal parts, which means the ability to cut a piece of metal into an accurate design over and over with little error or variance uh, that that precise machining was a really important ingredient for the industrial revolution. If you're mass mass manufacturing machine parts so that people can mechanize production of whatever it is, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. textiles they're working on or, or whatever um, you need to be able to produce all of these small uh, accurate reproductions of these, these fine metal parts and having the right kind of lathe or the ability to machine these parts correctly is crucial. Absolutely.
1: So, yeah, we see the the role of the lock in this this pivotal moment in just the, the, the future of human technology. Uh, so, yeah, fascinating to think about. Now, uh, for the rest of the podcast, though, I thought we'd, we'd talk a little bit at least about the use of locks and... Um, and keys in, you know, superstitious stories, but also in symbolism. Uh, certainly, we won't be able to even, you know, scratch the surface of the uh, the global traditions here. And, and again, this will be a great place for our various listeners to reach out to us and share more. But uh, Borg goes into this a, a tiny bit on his website, and uh, I, I want to read this one example that he shares. Quote: In Swedish folk tales, we have the castle that stood on golden posts. A cat transformed itself into a loaf of bread in the keyhole of a giant's castle, keeping the giant from getting into his home. Unlock the door, the giant yelled, but instead the cat told him about its many adventures until the sun went up
0: and the giant burst. (laughs) That sounds like a highly condensed folk tale. Maybe, <laughs> maybe something that was originally about ten times as long. I don't know. I, I kind of love it. It's <laughs> it's kind of uh, it almost feels like it's tweet length, but yeah. uh, but but perfect. Listen, we're not screwing around. Okay, I got to get to the burning up really fast. I'm not burning up. Bursting. Sorry. The sun comes up and he bursts. <laughs> um. So wait. What, hold.
1: Why did the cat turn into a loaf of bread? I guess. Okay, so I'm guessing, okay, it's a giant, okay. so it's a huge door and, and a huge keyhole, uh-huh. and I guess the, the the cat climbs in and then expands into the form. Like, if the cat can change his form, then I guess he becomes bread in order to completely stop up the keyhole and thus be
0: impossible to remove. Okay, I see. So the cat is doing this on purpose. It's not just like the cat happened to, to transform into a loaf of bread.
1: Right, yeah. I, I'm guessing the cat is kind of like the dog on Adventure Time. Okay. Um, uh, Jake, you know, where he can he can change his shape. Like the cat goes into the keyhole, swells up, and then the giant it really wants to get inside because the giant's like a troll and will burst if the sun touches him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It, it, it's a perfect story. <laughs> Go back to Niflheim. <laughs> Um so from here I'd like to to move on to to some of some symbols um that that involve the key. Uh there there's one in particular I wanted to start with because it was one that I remember seeing when I was a kid and and I didn't I didn't understand what it what it was about. Um so to, to, to lay a little background here, I, I assemble and paint various miniatures. I do a little Dungeons & Dragons miniatures. I, I do a lot of Star Wars miniatures right now. I do Star Wars vehicles. Mm-hmm. But my dad was really into World War II miniatures. So, you know, a lot of, like, um, uh, like, U.S. Air Force planes and tanks, but also some German planes and tanks as well. And I remember there being... Um, a book or a pamphlet that came with one of these that showed all these different German military symbols. And they were really perplexing to look at, especially since a lot of them seemed to like really resonate with evil. You know, it's kind of like that Mitchell and Webb look bit about, you know, are we the baddies? Right. Where they're yeah. looking at all the various skulls and black and white uh, symbols all over their their Nazi uniforms. Right. And I recall one unit insignia in particular that had a key on it. And, and I hadn't thought about this in a long time until we started to put this episode together. So I looked into it. I'm like, "What is was that key about? And I was thinking, okay, it's going to have some sort of, you know, occult symbol. You know, it's one of these various symbols that the Nazis, um, you know, appropriated and, you know, stole right. from some other tradition.
0: It's the the key to the gate of the Thousand-Year Reich or whatever. Yeah, or, or
1: whatever, you know. Uh, but I was curious, like, where they got it. Um, so... First of all, this was the symbol for the 1st SS Panzer Division. And, um, and yeah, it does look kind of spooky. It's in black and white, you know. Um, as it turns out, though, it has a pretty non-spooky, non-occult origin. Apparently, Joseph Sepp Dietrich was the unit's first commander. And his last name, Dietrich, uh, it can be translated as Keeper of Secrets or Lockpick or Skeleton Key. So that's all there is to it. Uh, The guy's last name like meant lockpick or skeleton key. And so they use that as the emblem. Uh, And then the armored uh, uh, SS Panzer Corps had a a different version of the symbol with like crossed keys. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because it also kind of sums up the utter emptiness of the Nazis in a way. You know, it's just It was picked because it it, it had some tie to this dude's last name
0: and it looked kind of spooky, but it means nothing. Right. Portentous seeming images with the appearance of symbolic uh significance but in fact they just point to nothing other than an individual personality's ego.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I mean to, to I guess on on some level though you look at it it involves the key and involves the lock and the the key and the lock are found just throughout human iconography in one form or the not- or another. Um, one of the big ones are the the uh that you'll find are Saint Peter's keys. Uh, you, you've seen these before right Joe?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So Saint Peter um According to Christian tradition, uh, it was the, was the first pope. You know, he was, of course, one of the disciples of Jesus. And uh, it's said that he was the first leader of the Catholic Church. And so uh, a lot of Catholic imagery uses the, the keys of Peter as imagery, uh, you know, symbolizing the authority of the church or stuff having to do with the papacy or Vatican City.
1: Yeah, I believe that the, the, the uh, let's see, Matthew sixteen nineteen says, "And I will give uh, unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Um, so you see these on a lot of the uh, you know flags and seals associated with the papacy, but you also see them in a lot of Swiss flags as well, and
0: uh, and other like mm-hmm. European bits of heraldry. You know, as much as I'm kind of a, a Bible nerd, I've actually never looked deeply into that passage. I wonder I wonder what the historical context of that whole the, the key imagery is. I bet that that cashes out in a kind of uh surprising and interesting way. I I would put some money on it.
1: Yeah. Um Now, if you're looking for more modern uses of it, more recent uses of it, you can look at the flag of the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, because it has um, it's a seal with the uh, you know the United States eagle and what does it have gripped in its talons? But a big old key.
0: It suggests that the agency is a bird of prey that swoops down and snatches up access to things.
1: Yeah, or or has just been granted the key to the city by the mayor, like it's a huge key. Well, Well, our pope's a bird. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a fun one to look up. Um, another one that I ran across, uh, and again, we're not mentioning near all of these, but just some of the ones that stood out to me. Mm. There's the flag of Gibraltar. Uh, this is the, the flag for the, uh, the British Overseas Territory, and it features a key affixed to a fortress by a golden cord. So it's a golden key, it has this golden cord, and it's kind of like tied inside the fortress's mouth, sort of. Um, and the mm. golden key here is said to represent the fortress of Gibraltar's importance and also signify the idea that Gibraltar was long seen as the key to Spain. Mm. But this one's neat because the key's just hanging there. It's kind of inviting you like, am I supposed right. to take it? Is that for me? Yeah. Um, there's also a, a really interesting one I ran across, the coat of arms of the German city of Bremen, a, a rather curious looking key uh, as it's linked to the patron saint of the Bremen Cathedral. Uh, Simon Petrus, aka Saint Peter, um, but but this is, this key has a real maze like look to it. It's really interesting when you look at the uh, the
0: end bit here. It's very ornate. Oh uh, yeah. So I guess this is what you would call a warded key, right? Like yeah. The, the way that it works is it has a complex, intricate sort of series of patterns in solid metal, and then it would turn through corresponding gaps in the walls inside the lock.
1: Right. And yeah, so I imagine this could be a functional key like the. But but on the other hand, it also suggests, you know, the the places you can go with the key as symbol, like the key can then just be transformed into other objects, you know, where in in a way you wouldn't have to go far to not recognize this as a key anymore, because there are also a bunch of lions on this. And one of the lions is brandishing the key and it looks more like it's a sword or a small hand cannon. Um, It's (laughs) it's curious. Yeah. So I guess I guess what we're saying is that sometimes the key means virtually nothing, but but often it signifies authority or strategic importance. Trust. Just a few examples. Yeah. Trust, ownership, um, secret knowledge, uh, Mm -hmm. certainly at times, um, forbidden knowledge. Uh, Yeah. There's so many directions you can go in.
0: I wonder, is there anybody else out there? Who's enough of a fan of the original Halloween that in your household, whenever you lose your keys and you're looking for them, everybody starts saying the keys like Jamie Lee Curtis does in, (laughs) in, in, uh, you know, the ending sequence. Oh, man. Do you remember that? Oh, God.
1: I I, I vaguely remember that. But it does make me think of just, oh, man, keys in horror films, Mm -hmm. the key fumbling scene, be it the key to a door or certainly the
0: key to an automobile. Where would we be without the key? Where would our suspense be? You know? I feel like a lot of movies have uh, replicated that scene in Halloween where you're fumbling with the keys, you're trying to get through the door, the killer is approaching, you finally get through the door and then the killer's just, where are they? They're just gone. You know, they were right (laughs) up on you when you get through. And then, of course, they're somewhere inside. Ah, yeah, they'll they'll do it every time.
1: Man, I, I certainly feel like we've only scratched the surface here about... Uh, 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 certainly about keys and locks in in history and global cultures uh, and also pop culture and Mm -hmm. yeah man there's so many different directions to go in so obviously we'd love to hear from everybody out there you know how locks and keys feature into your life uh, locks and keys from your part of the world or places that you've traveled to. Um, you know, it's all, it's all on the table. We'd love to, love to hear from you. Yeah. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, past episodes that deal with inventions or, or whatnot, uh, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe if the platform
0: allows you to do that, if they provide you the keys necessary. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stuff to stufftoblowyourmind.com.
3: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Or a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown. Sleep tight stories.